First off, Merry Christmas. <laughs> this morning as David read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, I'm going to reread it, and this morning I'll be using the ESV. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of the government, and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning with anticipation of your return. How? Lord, be with us as we get to go back and look at how your, your people was hoping for something. And then your son arrived and filled the void, an absence that was just plaguing your people as it does today. And your son's amazing and powerful name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When you read Isaiah chapter 9, what it makes me think about is a wish list. Because you had a group of individuals that were placing their hope in everything but God. How many times in the Old Testament do we see individuals screaming out for a king, begging, and God would grant it? Worldly kings, though. And then as I think about this season, I'm taken back to Matthew chapter 1, 1 through, I believe it's 17, where you're talking about the lineage before Jesus' birth. And I have to think over a period of time, all these individuals that were named were hoping, were waiting, anticipating. I don't know about you, but as a kid growing up, I remember my first Christmas experience. I was either in the fourth or fifth grade. And I remember our teacher, our our teacher, Mr. Cooper, he sat us down and he he said, hey, before you head home for our break, I want you to write your wish list to Santa. As a kid, as a kid, you you write these wish and you hope and you you, you pray and you you think if I do good and I'll be great this season and I'll get whatever is coming to me, I get that gift. But the crazy thing, as an adult, how often do we write a wish list? I'll tell you, I am, I am famous for writing a wish list as an adult. I wish I'd hit the lotto. Man, my, my worries and, and, and cares would just... Uh. I wish I could be a faithful husband constantly, daily, and surrender my flesh for my bride so I can come to her perfect. 
I wish I could be a great dad. I wish I made enough to provide for my family. I wish my health was perfect. I wish I would stop losing friends. I wish my son wasn't incarcerated right now. We always, we always write wish lists. And, and I can't be the only one that, that has ever sat and, and wrote a wish list. Maybe you don't write them anymore because you completely trust in God. But I know there was a time in everybody's life when we at least thought about what ifs. What if this had happened? What if I do this? It's kind of like a wish list. So as I was preparing a Young Life message a couple weeks ago for our high school friends, I started talking and thinking about my wish list as I was preparing this talk. I went back to my childhood and I remember that wish list that I made in Mr. Cooper's class. It's crazy. As a kid, I remember I wished for the sixth million dollar man. I don't know if you've ever watched that series back in, it started back in 1975. And, and it's funny, the reason I remember that movie as a kid growing up is because my father, my grandfather who raised me with my grandmother, he never watched TV until Lee Majors was on. He was the biggest Lee Majors fan ever. And I remember as a kid, I would sit on the side and I would sit there. And that was the only show he would sit and watch as the $6 million man. And I remember in fourth or fifth grade, I seen the commercial. They had re-established some toys. The first one came out in 1975. And, and I'd seen this in fourth or fifth grade. It's years later. And I see the $6 million man action figure. Now, this was like no other action figure. I mean, this thing, you could look through his eye and from the back of his head, and it was binocular. Like, he, had a, he didn't have kung fu grip. He had this grip where he could, you could pull back his skin, and it would show his cyborg. See, if you never watched the movie, he had a chance encounter. This guy, Lee Major, Steve Austin, he was a, he was a NASA pilot. And as they were going out on a flight one day, it exploded. And, you know, you kind of take the gamble as an astronaut. You, you win or lose some, right? But he had an encounter with a specialist that designed and created him to be a cyborg. I mean, this, this series chronicled the adventures of half-man, half-cyborg, bionic government agent Steve Austin. Oh. So back then, those toys were 8 to 12 inches. The, the G.I. Joes or the Big Wheels, like 8 to 10. This was 13 inches. It towered over the competition. This mus- muscular-looking fellow came dressed in a snazzy NASA-inspired red tracksuit. Oh. And it had the matching boots, just clean white. And I remember I was begging, I was begging my mom. So when the teacher said, hey, write your wish list, I said, done. I didn't want nothing else. That one present would have topped everything. See, as a kid, we get so excited as we write these letters to Santa and, and, we, and we get excited for what could come. Now as an adult, what I recognize is the presence I want is the presence of Jesus. 
Because see, Jesus' presence changes our past. I don't know about you, but my, my past had to be changed. And you think about it, a once-in-a-lifetime encounter changed the whole landscape of a group of men's lives. If you come with me to Matthew chapter 4, 18 through 12, or 18 through 22. There's a chance encounter that takes place. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them immediately. And he left the boat and their father and followed. Look at Peter. Peter, a Jewish fisherman. And this is who we're going to focus on for this message here, for this one little piece here. A Jewish fisherman was called to be a disciple of Jesus at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I love this idea of this chance encounter when Jesus came to him and said, Simon, your new name is Cephas, Peter. Rock is what it means in Aramaic. Peter, who was raised to be a fisherman, had no idea that moment that he encounters the Christ, your entire past is gone because your now new identity is going to be fully in me. And Peter, you're going to stumble and you're going to fall and you're going to fail. But you know what? My grace is sufficient. Even when you chose to deny me, I'm going to change you from the inside out. And this, this is the thing about I want you to understand about Peter. If you look at Acts chapter 4, 13, they, they talked about Peter. He was unlearned. He wasn't a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He wasn't a scholar. But this is what Jesus does is he calls the people who are willing to surrender it all for his glory. Nothing at all. His past, all, of what, all he would ever have been would have been a fisherman without that encounter. See, the unlearned does not matter to God of the universe who can take the most plain average person and hand him the greatest gift ever, which is his son. And that chance to encounter with his son changes us, changes everything about us. I was thinking as I was writing this, for myself, don't sit here today stuck in your past hurts, habits, and hang-ups thinking you cannot overcome because we have a God that says, surrender it all to me and I'll take your burns away. And this is why I love Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. As I was thinking about, about, about Peter and, and his struggle and his denial in those times where he said, Peter, get behind me. Or Peter would get in the boat and he's, he's like, I'll, I'll walk to you, just call me. And he calls out and then the minute the storm hits, Peter takes his eyes off of who the Lord is calling him to be instead. And he starts sinking because for that quick second, his eyes go, I see you, Jesus. Oh, man, the storm hits. How often do we do that in our lives? The minute the storm hits, we take our eyes from Jesus to our situation. 
But Jesus is super firm in what he says. Come to me all who labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burdens is light. He is saying, trust me and follow. And I'll change your whole perspective. This is, when I'm sitting here writing this, I'm writing it to myself. Because I'm going to be honest, man. The change is hard. The change is hard when you're arrogant and prideful. Change is hard when when you're a creature of habit, of routine. Change is hard when you've been raised a certain way and and you're, you're asking to change the way you believe, you think, the way you was raised to him. So all this doubt, all this pressure that Peter put on himself, he had to change all of that and just focus on Jesus. Because he understood Jesus' presence will transform the now also. Follow me to Hebrews. And if this doesn't give you encouragement this morning, I don't know what will. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confessions. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. The author of Hebrews is making a a bold statement. No longer do I have to go to the priest and ask for forgiveness. I've got a priest who's going to intercede daily on my life. But to do that, that means I have to surrender. Because when we allow ourselves in the presence of the Lord, he wants to radically change us from the inside out. The offer of Hebrew makes this bold claim that we will always have an intercessor that will battle for us. The only way that happens, though, is if we are willing to repent of our sins and boldly ask for his healing. We cannot be transformed if we don't trust or surrender. There's a story. I want to camp out here in a minute. It's a story about a young man who sets his eyes on Jesus. And he goes to Jesus, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? See, in Mark 10, verses 17 through 31, Jesus is approached by a man only identified as a rich young ruler. On the outside, it would appear this man had it all together. How many of us in church sit there and act like, we got it all together. I'm in my Sunday's best. Life is grand. Life is perfect. He was young. Health. He was rich. Status and power. And was probably good looking. He had it all, so it appears. 
But this question revealed his sense. He was missing something. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? See, it looks like this guy had it all together, but there was something missing. But this is the thing, when the challenge was laid before him, when the challenge was laid before him, despair. I love how Tim Keller in Jesus the King describes the rich young ruler. Of course he was missing something because anyone who counts on what they are doing to get eternal life will find that in in spite of everything they've accomplished. There's an emptiness, an insecurity, a doubt. Something is bound to be missing. How can anyone ever know whether they are good enough? How do we know if we're good enough? See, the, young, the rich young ruler thought he had it all together until that encounter with Jesus. It says when he walked away in Mark 10, it says as he walked away, he walked away sad. But as I was doing some, 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 some deep dive, the word that was used there was lupe, which translates to grieved. It's the same grieved that Jesus had in, Gethsemane, in, in, in the garden of uh, uh, oh gosh, uh, Gethsemane. There you go. Brain just went somewhere really quick. That's the same word used when Jesus was in the garden. In Matthew 26, 38, Jesus was grieved in great distress because he understood there was going to be a moment where he was going to be separated from God because of us. Like, I need you to let that sink in, not because of Jesus and what he did. It was because of each and every one of us. Because he took on our sin. As I was reading that this, this week, the thought came over as, I am the cause of the separation between what was supposed to be holy. Like, I don't, I don't, like, if you really stop and think about that, like, your sin, your past, your junk is the reason that the Father and the Holy One was separate for a moment. That is the grieved that this rich young ruler walked away with. That was the grieving in his heart. When Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. It was the center. It was the idol. It was what was placed in his heart. But you know what? There's a crazy thing. There's a pretty similar story about a guy named Zach. I tell my young life kids his name is Zach, even though everyone knows it's Zacchaeus. I like Zach because when I say Zacchaeus, kids look at me kind of funny. But there's a similar story here. You have the rich young ruler who is, his status, his money, his wealth is his desire. But he still sought out Jesus. The difference in that encounter is he made a willing choice to walk away from the Christ. But see, Jesus' presence wants to transform our future. And that's where we see Zacchaeus. Think about this. Title, chief tax collector. Status, wealthy. 
The difference in their design is he was short and statured. Maybe not really beautiful, like the rich young ruler. But there was something with all the money, all the wealth, all the status in his community. There was still a desire in his heart that needed to be filled. Two individuals rich. Two individuals with status. Two opportunities of an encounter. See, but Zach knew his sin. That's the difference. He knew he was a corrupt, a corrupt tax collector who collected more. He swindled people. And here it is. When Jesus was passing through the city of Jericho, Zacchaeus became very excited because Zacchaeus chose to run to a tree just to get a better view. Part of it he's trying to hide, but part of it he, he wants to fixate his, his sight on Jesus. So as Jesus is walking through, he stops at the tree. And he doesn't ask. He basically commands, Zacchaeus, I'm staying with you today. I want to know your story. Jesus pursued staying at Zacchaeus' house and as a result changed Zacchaeus' life. I don't know about you, but that encounter with the Christ. That's, that's a beautiful thing. We all desire to have that encounter. We all desire to be pursued. It's the same as Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. The, the idea is that these, these angels came uh, to the shepherds and those shepherds their, their desire was, I want to go and witness this and I want to see it because I want to be in his presence. This goes back to the history of Israel. Of, they've talked about this guy all throughout Scripture about the king to come. And here it is, you had the rich young ruler who is this Jewish background who understood the stories of there is a place for a Messiah coming. And Zacchaeus is like, I'm hearing the stories and I, I know my faith because of my culture and my background. And they say this is the guy that I'm supposed to chase after. See, Zacchaeus' story is so inspiring to everyone, both young and old. Based on the story about him in the Bible, there are three perspectives about Zacchaeus. The first perspective is the crowd. You think of Luke 18, 11, the Pharisee stood by, by himself and, God, I think that I am not like the other people, the robbers, the evil duels, or the tax collector. They threw him in there with the bag of everyone. So you think of this crowd. Historically, the collecting taxes was a career that had a negative reputation. People hated the tax collector. We still do, kind of. Because they asked for money from people, and also they cheated them. The Roman taxes were very excessive. The Jewish people were not happy about the situation, especially, especially since they were oppressed and had to still pay these taxes. But in the Bible, a chance encounter with a tax collector. Even in Matthew 18, 17, it says the tax collector is like the pagan. And based on this crowd's perspective, Zacchaeus was really just a, so, a socialite norm about tax collectors. The fact that the tax collectors used their position and power for benefits. No wonder they didn't let Zacchaeus in the crowd. 
Think about it. Zacchaeus is on the street where he sees Jesus. He's trying to get in and people are like, get back, Zacchaeus. I don't need you here. I wouldn't let Zacchaeus in. Because the crowd understood who he was. The community knew he was a lie, cheat, and steal. But this is the beauty of who Jesus is. I must stay at your house today. Jesus is changing social norms to radically change our lives. And then you think of the second, the perspective of Zacchaeus himself. Zacchaeus knew about Jesus the whole time and was excited to finally see him. Based on the story, we can, we can easily see Zacchaeus' character. He was a go-getter. Entitled, asking, and sometimes taking money from others. But he was a go-getter in the fact that I'm going to do whatever it takes to go see Jesus. Being a tax collector was not an easy job for him because of the nature of his business. The crowd perceived him for that reason. He climbed the tree to see Jesus. When Jesus told Zacchaeus that he was going to stay at his house, Zacchaeus became very happy and opened his door right away. There was no hesitation in Zacchaeus. There was no moment of, let me think about this. He, helped, he welcomed him gladly. Because he knew there was something empty, there was something rotten within his core. And he wanted that radically changed. Because Jesus also had a perspective in the story. Jesus seen Zacchaeus as my loved one, just as he sees us. But this is what happened. This is the beauty of it. Jesus already knew that Zacchaeus needed the invitation, not just in his home, but in his heart. After all, Jesus came to the world to save us from our sins so we could stay with him forever. For the Christ to transform our hearts again, we need to surrender and repent. I know for myself, it's the hardest thing to wake up every day and ask for that forgiveness. I had an amazing conversation with one of your elders. And it it made me realize like how humble this individual is. As we were hanging out, he's like, if you only knew my heart, pastor, you might not want me as an elder. See, there has to be a lot of courage for for an individual to say something like that and stake that claim. And as I left, I was sitting here thinking to myself, man, if if you only knew mine as your pastor. But see, that's the surrender that Jesus wants from us. The rich young ruler is choosing to do it on his own. You have an elder, though, who is willing to surrender to the Lord. And what my wife always says is God does not call the qualified. He, he, called, he qualifies the call. And that's the response to Zacchaeus. He chose the minute he had that encounter, hey, I'm going to surrender to you, Lord. I only want to fixate on you. So you know what? If I've wronged, if I've done anything, I'm going to pay back double, ten times, four times the amount. I'm going to give it all to you. Because that's what my heart is asking of you. Lord, my, my heart is asking for me to give and ask for forgiveness. Do you understand the humility in which he had to show to say to his people in his community, I am sorry for wronging you. 
This morning, as you think about this message of uh, the, the baby coming from heaven to earth, my question is, we surrender to him, though. Have you ever said, I am sorry? Like, have you ever, like, fully com- committed to apologize to an individual that you know you've wronged? It's a gut punch. Like, that's the hardest thing to do. But see, in Jesus' presence is the greatest gift the world has ever known, transforming the past, present, and the future of those who follow him. So that means we are called to. We, we, I challenge you for that. I'm going to finish with this quick thought. If this, this guy is Zacchaeus who everyone discounted can ask for forgiveness and surrender. What if that was the top of our wish list? That I can walk in surrender. I can walk in forgiveness. I can ask for forgiveness. It takes a lot of grace to do that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for how you show up for us. Lord, may we just continue to worship and praise you. Be with us for the rest of the service. In your son's amazing and powerful name we pray. Amen.